happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> yes, happy Halloween. Welcome to the special episode of the Tomodachi Brothers. Snack reviews, where at the end I kept mentioning that eventually we'd get around to movies. Well, we got around to movies. <laughs> this, this is our spooktacular, because <laughs> it's going to be so spoopy, you guys. Yes, we did a movie marathon for this special episode, and... Long story short, we we had a sort of random roulette. Each of us put forward a some sort of horror movie of some kind that we were all going to watch. We also have our special guest. Clockwork. Ooh, from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the country, he means. He's not dead yet. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yes, and... I would I would say spooky movie is is uh, debatable, but these uh, some of these were spooky in their own rights. <laughs> well, I'd say some of them were spooky. Some of them were definitely uh, were spooky. I think. <laughs> and the four movies we are covering in this one special episode. That's right, we are covering four movies in this one episode. Ooh, for the number of death. Ooh, <laughs> in certain countries. Ooh. Yes. So we had Mr. Sneck's uh, selection, which was Gremlins 2, Alien, who was Dotaku's choice? Nope, no, 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 no. Sorry. Uh, Alien was Clockwork's choice. No, okay. <laughs> we have the 1982 version of The Thing, which was Dotaku's choice. And I threw in this weird <laughs> little movie called Rubber. Oh, it was really weird. <laughs> Dutaku keeps referring to it as tire, and it's like, you know, you're not wrong. I, I keep thinking it's it's a it's about a killer tire. Okay, I'm sorry, spoilers, it's about a killer tire. You're not wrong, not at all. Basically, we're going to split this episode into basically four essential components, and uh, you guys can enjoy the breakdown. Warning. It is a non-stop spoiler onslaught going forward. Abandon all pretenses, ye who enter here. Gremlins 2, the new batch. Professor, why don't you break it down for us since this was your thing? <laughs> That's true. I actually decided to go for Gremlins 2 uh, specifically because uh, it's funnier. It was specifically designed to poke fun and play with the conventions established in the first film, which if y'all at home aren't familiar features this young boy named Billy who gets a pet called a Mogwai, which was Furby before Furby. Um, literally the Furby company actually made a Furby, um, a Furby doll of gizmo and the two could actually interact. That's a thing. <laughs> and, the Mugwai are this mystical species whose biology is in complete defiance of everything we understand about life. Uh, first, if you get them wet, they multiply like crazy. If they eat after midnight, they transform the cocoon and they go from these cute little mammal creatures and they turn into these terrifying clawed reptile things, uh, the titular gremlins. And you can't, they don't like bright lights and sunlight actually kills them. And I mean, not not only that. If they do become gremlins, uh, they basically go from being affably dim to being overtly violent and malicious. So that's that's important to to, to note because at first they're like, oh look, they're cute, and then they get really really violent once they start becoming gremlins. Yep, they also become a bit bigger. They get uh, longer, more spindly limbs, and they're 
able to reach more stuff and cause more general mayhem. Oh, yeah, they do. This is just a classic for me. I still love this <laughs> right. movie. No, it's it so is. much fun. The Gremlin movies are just fantastic. They're just silly and fun. And I mean, Gizmo. <laughs> you know? I completely forgot that the ostensible villain, if there even is one, it was Christopher Lee. I just, it, <laughs> yeah, because the, the Gremlins themselves are such big characters that I kind of forgot that he was even in It this. had been such a long time. Do you talk about I were watching the opening credits and it's like, wait, Christopher Lee is in this? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, and he is. He's the head of the, the geneticist lab. The reason why all the gremlins have their weird abilities that they have. Because for whatever reason, gen- genetics, according to this film, basically means you get a bunch of potions and little beakers <laughs> and you drink the potions and then you just suddenly get to grow wings or become super intelligent or, you know, get spider legs. I mean, that's how genetics works, right? Basically, instead of the first film where it took place in kind of this rural town, this time it basically takes place. There's no other word for it. It happens in like Trump Tower. Now, the scary thing about this film is it was produced in, I want to say, 88 or 89. Nope. 1990. 1990? Okay. It's 1990. Um, Right there, the decade. And the thing is, it kind of predicted a lot of things that are coming true today. Like the entire thing is the building was a smart building before smart buildings were a concept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's actually kind of eerie how on the head they, this movie actually was with a lot of the technological progression. Yeah. The fact that they had to like actually use the key cards in order to get around. And then the gremlins got a hold of them and started messing around with things. Uh, the fact that you could, yeah, uh, just kind of navigate entirely through computers. And this is before the internet was a thing. It's actually really good. And not only was it a, a good stab in the dark in terms of uh, technological progression in 30 years, it's also just, it looks really cool. They do a good job making the building look futuristic. It still kind of holds up, I'd say. I, I really like the puppetry that they have for the gremlins themselves. Yep. Was, was this Jim Henson? I want to I say it was. it was, but let me double check that. It, it would... It would highly surprise because like a few, especially like with um, the one like girl gremlin, th- there's a more than a few <laughs> nods to Miss Piggy with that. So, well, the, the, yeah, just. it's just it, it still looks good. You go back and look at all that those older puppetry things like it's just it's got that organic element to it that you don't get with CGI where like you, you feel like you can reach out and, you know, touch them. They, they feel more physical snack and i were actually talking about that because we watched um gremlins and the thing back to back and we were both you know like yeah it's all the practical effects the fact that they actually had puppets yes for the i feel like as we're watching most of the movies the practical effects i feel like had more of an impact than i mean cgi has come a long way but i don't i it's it is very weird when it because i feel like especially when i was watching like the thing which we'll get to here in a minute. And it, I just like it. I don't want to say more real, but it's more like, I don't know. It had more of an impact. No, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it partially is the fact that the practical effects limit what you can do, but also because it's actual tangible objects that are on screen and not just because the beautiful thing about the uh, human eye is that being a blind man, I am kind of painfully aware of this every moment. But uh, the human eye is great at detecting things that aren't real. And so, you know, it's kind of that uh, uh, the Mr. Plinkett moment where it's like you look at the CGI 
and you don't think it's bright, you know, you don't think it's fake, but your brain did, you know, because there's that back, you know, back into your brain, the lizard bit of your brain that's going, that's not real. That's just a bunch of computer. Uh, but with like, for instance, here, the actual gremlins going around, like interacting with the actors, you know, messing around with things, you know, sh- shooting like cream pies at people or, you know, squirting stuff on people that, I mean, there actually are puppets there to do that. It's not a, oh no, oh, and they're not even looking in the actual direction of, you know, the, where the gremlin is supposed to be. <laughs> you don't have that here. Whereas even films, to, you know, this year, well, maybe not so much this year because, I mean, <laughs> films in 2020, am I right? Yeah, that new Monster Hunter movie is looking really good. <laughs> uh, but for instance, like uh, The Wrinkle in Time, The Wrinkle in Time, where they have, you know, the, the, the actresses playing the stars aren't even looking at the humans that they're supposed to be, you know, like guiding around because, whoops, the entire thing is CGI. And this is a this is not a little film either. This was like a half a billion dollar film. And they couldn't even get that right. And that's this, the worst part is that's not even a, an uncommon thing. It's just CGI is really hard to get right. Uh, as much as people like to bag on the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, I feel that, you know, uh, Lucas did a good job in kind of future proofing them like that. I mean, yeah, they're, they're still pretty fake. You can kind of notice, for instance, when like Ian McGregor is like trying to talk to an alien and you can kind of see that he's just kind of talking to like where Lucas like, OK, so the aliens right in front of you have a conversation with him. But I mean, even still, it's the best of a lot of what I see is, you know, modern kind of special effects films. I'm not seeing any mention of the creature feature being used for the gremlins. It looks like they may have done some uh, in-house studio work on that. Now I will tell you a fun technical fact about this film is there's actually a couple different versions of it floating around. There is a scene um, kind of at like the 60 to 70% mark of the runtime where the gremlins get into a movie theater and into the projection booth. Now what happens during this next scene actually varies because originally they used, uh, I want to say the first version used footage from a John Wayne movie and it's supposed to be John Wayne telling off some uh, bandits and it has the gremlins mugging back in response and John Wayne starts shooting them with his revolver and the gremlins start falling over and then they had to change it. And then they had one where it was um, Looney Tune shorts, the original gremlin short uh, based on the, the term gremlins apparently started in the forties during world war two, where certain machines would just not work. And people were like, Oh, it's got the gremlins. The gremlins are making the machine not work. Machine spirits, man. Yep. <laughs> and then there was a, a Bugs Bunny sketch where he's like, Oh, you don't think it's gremlins. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they had the Hulk, Hulk Hogan show. And then in the version, because we actually rented a copy off of YouTube. And yeah, we, we got we got Hulk Hogan shows up and starts body slamming gremlins. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think it matters which version you get. It's amazing regardless. 
but they they actually yeah it was like three or maybe even four versions of that uh, particular cut. Didn't they do something similar with the Clue film when it came out? Uh, yeah, there were actually uh, three different endings, and it actually varied depending on which theater you went to. Is that the reason there's three or four? Is that more along the lines? Of, I don't know if you have it in front of you or not. Uh, is that more for licensing things? Like you know they only they only use the scene for a certain part, or is that more like <laughs> M- maybe maybe not? I haven't really found anything that's talked about it yet. Um, it was Paramount that made the film, wasn't it? Paramount made the film, but I believe Warner Brothers was in cooperation with it, which is why it starts and ends with a Looney Tunes short. Okay, because I'm pretty sure that the if it's the John Wayne film that I think it is, then Paramount would own the rights to it because they were the ones who made the film. Uh, I believe it's prob- if it's the one I think it is, it's probably The Searchers. You're probably right. And I think probably the reason they went with the whole Kogan scene is just to avoid future licensing disputes. Yeah, that, that would make more sense. Mm-hmm. And that way the film could still get future releases. Um, but yeah, that's that's your fun trivia fact for this film. But the, main, the main reason I asked is kind of like when they were making the new to Tony Hawk one plus two is that a lot of people are like, well, are they going to get a lot of the original music? And that's a lot of licensing and stuff like that. They would have to re go through because it's a brand new game. So like, if you're re-releasing a movie, I've seen a couple things where it's just like, like, Oh yeah, they don't have a particular score or something like that because of licensing issues with whoever they got it from stuff like that. So I figured that was more like, yeah, like that or some of that nature. Let's say if they don't have Superman by Goldfinger, I mean, that's basically the first game right there. That. So, <laughs> pretty much right yeah. <laughs> they do actually like they have the entire they got the entire score back plus more oh, okay. so it's cool. if you if you play it's really good but that's why i was wondering it's kind of like when you see a lot of you get the theatrical release you got the movie released and you got you know all the other releases sometimes there are those little changes that you don't know that you might not notice firsthand but i mean a, a movie scene with john wayne and then going to looney tunes or something like that's a that's a pretty big jump <laughs> yeah okay well gentlemen we talked a lot about the effects and kind of we went over the plot what about characters i mean i know this is not really a character driven film but uh what, what are your all your thoughts on the characters then uh professor what what do you think you're, you're the one who did this movie trying to remember the name uh zach galligan here it is he played billy billy the, the main character he was actually an unknown before he starred in the Gremlins films, this actually launched his career. Um, and he uh, nails it. He is this really fun, kind of a, an affable goober kind of main character. He's the same kid from the first movie, right? Yes, he is. And uh, he has a really good chemistry with everyone else in the cast. And you see that he has this very genuine do-gooder nature about him. But he's also very clever. And he, uh, you see, especially in the film's climax, he has kind of an underhanded streak when he, he finally gets pushed to his limit uh, when he uses the, uh, the electric gremlin Mm-hmm. to zap the ones down the foyer. So he he really carries it as a main character. The, the Gremlins steal the show, but Billy is a worthy protagonist, I have to say. And um, Phoebe Cates, who plays Kate, uh, is right there with him for most of the film. And she does a really good job playing this kind of um, very deadpan sidekick to Billy, who's trying to do damage control the entire film. Is she the his girlfriend, or is she the the his boss who's like trying to make the moves on him? She's the girlfriend. All right. Yeah. See, it's you know the funny thing for me was uh, I I did not remember this because I this has been a while since I saw this, but uh, Mr. Clamp, the actual owner of the tower. Yes. You know, it, originally I'm like you know oh it's going to be he's going to be a rich bungling guy he's going to probably be like a villain. No, he's not. 
he's not actually, he's very, not only is he very supportive of, uh, you know, what Billy is trying to do, but he actually is uh, very instrumental to them succeeding in overturning the, uh, the gremlins in the end. He, he's a very, very kind hearted, very, uh, you know, ambitious guy. But he's not like ruthless or, you know, like, oh, ha, ha, I have money. I'm above the law. No, he actually cares very deeply for the people who he employs, which I think is kind of funny and probably would not see in modern films because, uh, you know, oh, rich people bad, which is just kind of funny considering it's rich people making these films. But I mean, you know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> uh, so I, I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, also the fact that, I mean, ultimately, yeah, there really is no bad guy apart from maybe the gremlins. I mean, Christopher Lee's thoughtlessness is kind of the reason why it happens. But I mean, even then he's just a scientist. He's not like, like, I will use the gremlins to conquer the world. No, he's just like, I wonder what would happen if I, you know, gave them elephant ears or something like that. <laughs> And in the event y'all missed the joke, Christopher Lee's character's name is Dr. Cushing Catheter. <laughs> Just uh, slipping that one right by the, the side pocket, right? Oh, that's funny. Speaking of Clamp, I was actually surprised to see him too. Uh, John Glover. That was another guy. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because I remember him from so many other movies that I just he's in one of my favorite Christmas movies of all times as well. And it's funny because he, he got kind of typecast as that sort of boss character kind of he's he's always bit played guys like that. Because I remember he was uh, Bryce in Scrooged with Bill Murray. And uh, oh, that's yeah. right. So I it, it, it was that. it was in, he's, he's always kind of been that like sort of boss character. But it was it was it was entertaining regardless. Mm-hmm. All right, clockwork. I to be perfectly honest here. I watched most of this in passing. Uh, I was not super into the movies. I remember a little bit of the first one, a little bit of the second one, and I'd be perfectly honest. Like, I'm not going to be able to do this justice uh, from from my my hand knowledge. So, I mean, I was kind of, I did see Chris Lee, and I and the only thing I could think of it was yeah, that was really cool because the only thing I really remember him from because my movie background isn't super big like your guy this is where i mostly you know i'm the guy who plays a lot of video games and i mostly know him from like lord of the rings and stuff like that but um from what it i think uh the characters i mean i just i mostly just remember the gremlins and the creepiness of them when they transform i don't got my, i don't really have much more than that I, i'm not very sorry about that <laughs> no that's fine i mean if you want films that he's good in like um bram stoker's dracula the man with the golden gun I mean, if you really want to get deep into the into the business, there's a Stirba 2 werewolf. Although you might not want to have your little brother around there because he'll be like, oh, that girl is not wearing any 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 shirts. I mean, this is this my little brother watched is uh, has seen Alien. Yeah, well, okay, I'm gonna put it this way. I'm gonna like put it this so. way. Stirba 2 is about a werewolf killing people, and it turns out that it's a woman an attractive young woman and she doesn't wear a shirt a lot. Okay. So yeah, uh, it's, okay. it's a great slasher <laughs> film, but yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Oh, I have to put this out. Also be sure to check out Christopher Lee on the quite entertaining Rhapsody of fire albums. Just putting that out there. Oh, that's As true. The narrator. That's true. I completely forgot about that. Thank you. God. I have to get that power, power metal dose in there. <laughs> That, that's true. That's all true. All right, guys. Favorite gremlin mutant. I kind of like the really studi 
uh, smart oh, one. Oh, yeah. Just because it's, he, he is like the quintessential, like, well, I'm from New York, and you are dumb. And <laughs> <laughs> he is a joy. Uh, actually, he was voiced by Tony Randall, according to the Wikipedia page here. And uh, that explains the very hmm. deep, very uh, suave kind of voice he had going on. And I loved how he was just like having this really deep, meaningful conversation with uh, with Uncle Fred. This other gremlin just comes up like laughing at him. He grabs the pistol and just shoots him in the face. He's like, that was not civilized, but that's not what we're shooting for here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cog, I mean, what's what's yours, man? I'm, I'm going to go with the uh, the big weird spider transformation at the end, just because I love all the weird practical effects like that. Uh. And he's like, he like drinks the potion and turns into the like spider gremlin thing it looks like a crab or something oh that's a good one too according to the professor as we were uh as we were watching it he goes ah oh, that's the final boss of the video game and i'm like only you would know yeah, that yeah <laughs> only you would know that <laughs> my favorite is probably the bat gremlin oh yeah he, he doesn't he doesn't get to do anything but every scene he's in is really freaking funny like the the first thing he does is he starts growing the wings and the professor gremlin comes over and he's just like, no, no, we can't have you going outside without the proper sunblock. And he just flies through the wall, makes the Batman logo, <laughs> gets into a fight with um, Billy's, uh, I say uncle. I forget the exact relation. Uh, I believe it's his neighbor. Yeah. yeah and, and then he flies to the top of this building and ends up solidifying into a gargoyle. I'm like, you know, he's only in like two or three scenes, but every scene they made that particular puppet count. Do you uh, do you have one clockwork? I don't, unfortunately. I mean, the one that if I if I if it was in passing, if the one that I think I would like, I would resonate the most is the snooty professor one, though, because I feel like that would probably get into the most trouble, the most trouble since he would be the most, I would assume, the intelligence of them and pops for making a super weapon in your basement and you wouldn't know about it <laughs> i mean that basically is yeah the the running gist is they don't want him to get out because he's kind of you know pushing the rest of them the uh the gremlins themselves are all just kind of unrestrained id and he's the only one who's kind of uh utilizing his you know talents the brains of the operation exactly which is funny as uh mohawk is supposed to be their leader but he actually kind of becomes a non-presence in the latter half of the film well he gets killed yep pretty quickly doesn't isn't he the one that he gets thrown through the paper shredder yeah um was that mohawk i forget i'm pretty sure yeah i think it was which honestly that that is a really really that's a really really great scene too because that was a good kill it throws it yeah they throw him into the paper shredder and he just like turns in like gacky chunks it's like (laughs) talk about using your practical effects the the microwave kill was pretty good too yes Uh, microwave microwave marge yes all right gents um so we did plot we did the special effects we talked about characters we talked about our favorite gremlins i can't really remember any music there, there wasn't anything really to stand out, at least to me. Really, the, the only song number that kind of took anything was uh, New York, New York, when the Gremlins begin having a toast at the end of the film. Oh, yeah. The soundtrack is good, all in all. Uh, it serves the purpose that a soundtrack should. But I don't don't really think any of the songs will get stuck in your head when you leave the theater. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't pop in your head, but it, it definitely provides the ambiance for the film. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of putting it. All right, gentlemen. So final thoughts. Honestly, I think this is a solid 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, I'll second that 8.5 out of 10. I, I will third that. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. 
I mean, it's not perfect, but I mean, uh, it kind of sidestepped the entire like, what do you do after the first film? And it's like, well, you kind of just poke fun at the first film. <laughs> so clockwork. Uh, I don't really have a good I don't really have a number for it, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> like I said, most of it, my knowledge of it was in passing. It's OK. He'll probably he'll probably perk up when we start talking about the thing. So, yeah, it's it's OK. I remember him because he, he was like. He was watching and he was talking to me. Oh, I got a Discord. story. Don't worry. I got so, I got some yeah. stories about the other films. This, <laughs> yeah. uh, fortunately, the gremlin of my of my repertoire movies we're talking is, is the weakest. And I do apologize. All right, for that, that's but fine. Trust me. We're going to we'll get some, we'll get we'll get me talking here in a minute. Trust <laughs> me. It's OK. <laughs> you know, it's it's a thing where we're all expanding our horizons here. So, I mean, especially with the last film. Whew. I, uh, that, that was an interesting experience. So, I mean, it's okay. <laughs> All right, let's, put, let's put a cork in that particular bottle. We're not ready to release that particular genie. Okay. 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 All right. So next we're looking at John Carpenter's The Thing. Based on a novelization called Who Goes There? Which is actually part of a, a even longer novel called Frozen Hell which uh, actually just got released because they found the, uh, the longer underbridge manuscript. Oh, really? So, huh. yep. It got released about 10 years ago. I, I, I want to get it, but, um, well, gosh, darn it. I, I got a new, uh, tablet. I got a new, you know, little, a new few toys. And so I can't really justify getting a very rare science fiction horror novel. Well, interesting point of, of note is this particular novel has actually been adapted four separate times. In 1951, we had The Thing from Another World. In 1972, we had Horror Express. The third, which is the film we're looking at, is the 1982 The Thing. And then we had the pseudo-sequel The Thing released in 2011. Correct me if I'm wrong, isn't one of those movies, like, if I remember, I don't remember if this is true or not, and it could be maybe my brain is just for some reason making something up. Isn't this sort of a continuation of like in in the movie? There's a there's like a like a crumbled base that they find. Isn't there like a movie set in there that? And this one's kind of a like a slight continuation of that in a sense, or that might be the 2011 film. I think you might also be thinking of the 2006, I want to say video game, which is actually the only, only piece of media that John Carpenter has gone out and said, yep, that's Canon. Everything else. He's just like, no, <laughs> yep. That's, that's Canon. Canon. That's Canon. Yep. That's Canon. And, and that, <laughs> that, that video game is actually infamous because it drove, uh, Noah Antweiler, AKA Spoonie one up a freaking wall. Apparently. That's one of my favorite reviews of his, to be honest. Man, man, Spoonie, you got to come back. You're, 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 you do good stuff. <laughs> so the story takes place in Antarctica, far away from human civilization, where really our team focuses on a small squad of American researchers and their support staff. Led by Snake Plissken. <laughs> I mean, Snake Plissken. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. McCready is not their leader initially. Um, yes, I know he's not the leader initially, but I mean, he's the one who stands out the most. He, I mean, he kind on. of is forced into the rule. No, he, he does, and he's kind of forced into the role of leader, um, kind of against his will. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're holding a stick of dynamite, you're, you're kind of do in any case <laughs> yeah yeah so they they basically what happens is is they encounter a norwegian uh, helicopter that's chasing a wolf dog and the thing is is that this guy must be as blind as i am because he gets like five shots off 
and he's in a helicopter. The the wolf dog is running at a steady speed. It's like, come on, guy, you through, can't shoot through this deep thing? snow. Like the, he's running through deep snow, so it's just yeah. like, yeah, he, yeah, he's panicking at this point because he probably knows what it. I believe it's a savage. He knows what it is because he's from that base. Oh, they, they they know exactly what it is. At when the Norwegians approach the American base, they explain the plot of yeah. the film. Yeah. But they're saying it in Norwegian. And he also has a box of grenades, by the way, that he can't hit the dog with either. <laughs> yeah, so the entire thing is, is they're chasing it. They take it to the, it, uh, it's headed to the American base. They get it to the American base. Um, and they're trying to explain to the Americans what's going on. And all they see is just this guy babbling at them in a language they don't understand. The pilot tries to get out a grenade, fumbles the grenade. The helicopter blows up. So the guy with the rifle who's there talking to them, basically, he panics. He tries to shoot the wolf dog, and basically everybody else immediately just opens up and kills him. And so they now they have this just perfectly innocent wolf dog that just happens to wander around the base. And no one really puts him away. No one really does anything with him. And he just starts, you know, hanging out with everybody. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really start to get weird, although, I mean, I think this is probably one of the greatest parts of the film because it really leads suspicion to, okay, this thing was basically everywhere. It touched basically everyone. And so it leads that great level of suspicion of like, okay, you, you have all this setup now, what's going to happen? Because, uh, the, the beautiful thing about it is, is once we kind of start learning about the monster, it's not like in, a, it's not like our, our uh, film we talk about later, the, uh, the Xenomorph, which unfortunately, as much as I love the first film, the, the rest of the franchise did not do it justice. Not here. It is kept very sparing as to when you see the monster. And I think that's to its testament and that you kind of see the monster and learn its abilities as the characters do. And so a lot of things, you know, you can kind of go, oh, well, why didn't they do that? It's like, well, because they didn't know it could do that. OK, so I want to also put in the notion, though, as as uh, is that I noticed in some of the older movies that we watch is that sometimes the people or like the like the, the, the protagonist group, which, you know, is which is uh, Keith, Keith David and uh, who else is here? Uh, Kurt Russell and et cetera. Wilford Brimley as Dr. Blair. That that actually was my, I'm like, wait, what? That's the diabetes guy? At one point, Kurt Russell goes, get the flamethrower. And the first time I'm like, wait, you have a flamethrower? Wait. <laughs> well, you have to remember, this is in, in Antarctica. They need a way of defrosting things Which quickly. In, in, in retrospect, made sense. But that was like the first thing I re- I was like, I okay they have a flamethrower and then it yeah. was the next part and the other thing was that and something that the monster doesn't do anymore or only happened i guess in the first iteration i don't know if it kind of gene morphed out of it but when it's with the dogs and is transforming of course all the dogs are freaking out but it's like spits like a, like a gooey acid on one of them and i guess it eats it and dissolve it dissolves it and eats it in a sense but you never see that again it's like the only time it actually does it which was kind of interesting to me. Well, you also have to. Well, no, no, it did it. If you remember the one time it was, um, they they had the one guy when they were trying to get the blood samples, and so everybody except for one guy 
went off to check the blood samples. And so it was just the corpses alone with this one guy. I forget who if it was Brady. I think it was. And yeah, they basically, it was like covering him in tentacles and it basically melted him. I mean, but then again, it was also the longest. It was basically alone with its prey. I also, I thought it was kind of just like trying to meld with him and just devour him whole. Well, I mean, that's what it does. Ultimately, that's that's uh, that's Blair's entire thing. Uh, Wilford Brimley's character, who's a doctor, um, effectively, they once. Okay, so they they have this wolf dog, Blair and McCready go to the Norwegian research station. And they actually take the research notes that they have on that they get on this thing because they realize they basically cut something out of the ice. They go to where they were and discover this UFO. Now, there's no Prometheus moment. There's no, they made us or, ooh, we evolved from this alien. No, it's just alien. And they cut it out of the ice. And that's when things go crazy. Is that a is that an accurate assessment, gentlemen? Pretty pretty yeah. much, yeah. yeah basically, because it which uh, and I less at least from what I remember, what I saw is that they they kind of dug out the UFO like the Norwegians did, but they had mm-hmm. like a side spot where they found like the coffin that originally held the the monster. Well, it wasn't a coffin; it was literally just a chunk of ice that they cut out of the. Uh, oh, was the, a chunk of ice? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I I can understand your confusion. Um, it the looked like a coffin when I looked at Snack, it. When you first Snack at saw it. it and he's like, oh, so it's like a jacuzzi. I'm like, what are you all? <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a jacuzzi. It's not my fault. It is very kind of reminiscent of like a lot of HP Lovecraft inspired writing, sort of like the Mountains of Madness sort of thing. You know, I, I was kind of thinking that myself, yes. So, and that's when uh, they start to learn that the thing that they grabbed uh, can eat people. And uh, takes on aspects of that those people or things that they eat, and it will perfectly mimic them. And it only has one overarching desire, really, and that is to hide and to eat other things. It's not super intelligent because you learn, as you see, it makes a lot of really dumb decisions. But it is really, really good at eating and mimicking, you know, things. Not just people, but just any living matter. And so the danger then becomes, okay, who can we trust to become, you know, who can we trust who's not basically been infected? And the worst part is, is once again, because the wolf, they, they set up that time where the wolf dog was just kind of wandering around. And personally, they had this one scene because uh, initially the, the chef was by himself, just kind of, you know, jamming out to a stereo. And they actually had the wolf dog come in and he was not really shown a whole lot. So I was expecting that later on there was going to be a scene where they're like, oh, you know, hey, it's the chef. And then the chef just like opens up and becomes a monster or something. And now he gets killed. He never is a he never is infected. He, he gets killed later on. There's also another scene. I think it's right next to that one. I can't 100% remember. And I'm terrible with names. I really apologize. I'm on the wiki right now trying to remember who it is. But there's a couple of them sitting at the poker, the poker table and, you know, playing a couple of games. And the dog walks by. And I guess he nips at one of them. And you're like, oh, well, if this is the, the that he he's now infected with the with whatever it has now because he just like nicked him. But it, it, I don't believe that ever gets played upon anymore. Like, I believe he gets turned in, turned into the monster. But I think he I think it was by other means or he's eaten by the monster. But I believe it was by other means. He doesn't actually just transform from that. I believe that was 
Bailey. Because uh, I know that Clark, the guy that actually takes the, the wolf dog, the thing, into the kennel, uh, is the second guy that they actually discover to be infected. But yeah, I don't think that... No, actually, he... Uh, the wolf, the, 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 I would call him the beast master since he's the one who seems to be, to love and care for all the dogs. Everyone else doesn't seem to care. He's actually the only one who actually gets quote unquote murdered, uh, by Kurt Russell because, uh, he tries to save the dogs or whatever when they're in their kind of panicky moment. They don't know what's going on. No, 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 no. Later on, later on when they're all out there with the, uh, later when they're outside. And they're like Clark, Clark, and they they turn and they, uh, they they turn and then you see his hand and his hand is like this horrifying like talon thing. Or am I thinking of I'm, am I thinking of someone? I else? believe you're thinking of someone else because um, I mean again I could be wrong I could be wrong but I remember there was one I believe it was a dude he had the beanie on he was the one the only person who was technically killed without being the monster was because he was trying to attack. Uh, RJ or McRandy, uh, because he was holding the dynamite and everything like, or not holding the dynamite, I apologize. He was, uh, but they were like discovering that this creature was here and they were just trying to discuss what they mm. were going to do. It's almost like the paranoia can kill you faster than the monster can. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Exactly. Because I remember when they were, and I don't mean to be jumping back and forth and, you know, spoilers for whatever, a really old movie, but the, the whole test where they, it's, it's fine clockwork. We're going to have a spoiler, <laughs> you know, we're going to have spoiler warning before yeah, this. Anyway. The test okay. that they do is they, you know, they take a, everybody's blood and then they take a hot piece of metal to it because they realize that the monster is one, like is a living being in every form where even the blood tries to save itself. And when they test, yeah, basically every single Every single cell is its own independent organism. And they yeah. test his blood and they realize he wasn't the monster. So technically McRandy in essence murdered him. But it was in, I mean, I, I always said that it was self-defense. He was coming out with a knife and he had a gun. I mean, it, what are you going to do in that case? I mean, really? <laughs> he was not the imposter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I was about to say one of the things that really struck me about this was like, even though it's only one film, there's no franchise really for it. It's a hugely influential film in terms of science fiction. A lot of things homage it. It is. It's funny because um, when you look back at like the 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 reception of it, people like critics hated this movie when it came out. Oh yeah, it mm. was like this is like nihilistic and despairing and a quote wretched excess. And it's funny now looking at the incredible. Like you said, Dataku, just the incredible influences it had on movies moving forward. I was about to say, um, Sneck has gotten really big into Among Us. And it's like, he's like, I've taken a new appreciation on becoming a <laughs> psychopathic murderer who kills spacemen. And I mean, yeah, even even some of the kills in Among Us kind of homage it. The fact that one of them, I believe, your entire guy basically splits apart into tentacles and just like starts eating them. Yep. Just like shoot this like thing out of your mouth and just like impales them. Yeah. Also, I'm looking at the the wiki for the this specific movie. It didn't seem like it bombed. It looked like it did fine. According to it, it had a $50 million budget and it made $19.6 million in North America alone. Well, it, basically the point that I believe Cla- uh, Cog is trying to say 
uh, clog. That's clog. This is now Tomodachi's canon. We become clog. Yes. Well, I think Cog's trying to say is that this was not a runaway hit. Critics hated it, and it may it might have been successful in terms of making its money back, but they were in probably the studio was in no hurry to make another one of these because, I mean. You know, it if the critics hated it and it only made so much, you're probably not going to, you know, have the thing to thing harder or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't until the audience that kind of saw it as kids started growing up and be like, holy crap, do you remember, you know, people like us were like, holy crap, do you remember the thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That, that it suddenly yeah. got its kind of cult following. Yeah, we, we didn't see it as kids. This film is older than we are. I, I mean, I saw it when I was much younger than I am now, but... I saw it back in middle school and my memory did not do this film justice. Like the practical effects are still amazing. Oh yeah. Oh yes. This is easily one of my all time top five, top three favorite horror movies of all time. I love it to death. It's, it's one of my absolute favorites. Um, It's still terrifying. Just the practical effects are just, I remember seeing it as a kid and just, you know, I had nightmares. It, 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 (laughs) It scared the crap out of me, and I loved every minute of it. Oh, it's absolutely – I can completely understand it. This is the Taku Nightmares level of uh, – in case you're not aware, the, the professor has taken a great pleasure in creating a dream log for all the weird nightmares that I have because according to him, he's going to create a indie horror game about all the weird things that come out of my subconscious. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. No, no, I, I completely agree with you there, Cog. It's uh, th- this is great stuff, and I, I especially like um, how just weird and goopy and just very unpleasant oh, yeah. the monster is. And on top of that, there's no explanation for it. It's just this weird shape shifting monster thing. No reason. Once again, once again, it's it's there's no Prometheus. I I cannot I cannot I cannot just ever really forgive Ridley Scott for what he did to alien with Prometheus, but we don't have to worry about that here. It's great. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I have to ask though, is that, well, in a, in a way is uh, at least to try to kind of get us on it more, maybe a little more organization is scenes. I, what, I mean, I, in my opinion, I think my favorite, scene, even though it wasn't the best, I think my favorite scene is the, um, is the dude who's on the table who, uh, his his gut opens up and it becomes teeth and it bites the doctor's yeah, arm or hands guy, up. Yeah. Oh, when he's yeah. trying to defibrillate him. Yeah, that is oh, something man. else. Oh, there, there's a funny thing about that. Actually, I I actually have a piece of trivia about this one. You want to know how they did that? When they actually had his arms like literally get ripped off. What they did was they had a a a stunt lookalike who was a double amputee. So what happened was is they did that. They stopped the the uh, filming. They had the fake um, the fake arms that were being chewed off, and so they then just put the double amputee lookalike right there, and then had him actually lift up his arms and go. Oh! So that's why it looks so real because that guy actually does not have upper arms. 
that's that's how they did that. I think yeah. though my my favorite of them was though is that that was a good scene. I'm not saying it was was when the head kind of just kind of melts off. Oh yeah, and because they're bur- they're burning him with uh, the flamethrower to kill the monster, but then the head kind of sprouts little spider legs and starts kind of crawling away here to click click click. click. And I was sitting here like, is he going to get away? There's no way he's going to get away. And they all kind of turn to it and go, nope. And they and they burn it too. And I was like, man, that's really corny. That's like a really really corny what amazing scene for some reason just because he's like he's about to get away nope <laughs> well I, I mean after you saw someone basically get eaten by you know someone's beer belly <laughs> I don't think you have any tolerance for that sort of thing also I mean I think I think Valve owes people some money because I'm pretty sure that's where head crabs came from and yeah 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 I'm sorry I'm sorry professor you're gonna be like actually it's, it's just a thing that controls them I uh, it Looks just like them. In in form, in form, if not in function, I think is fair to say. Yeah. Now, here's a bit of trivia that I didn't know until we sat down to watch this. Ennio Morricone did the music. Oh, Oh, that's true. I completely forgot about that. That's true. And I got to say, I really love the the kind of the 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 opening theme. That's the very dome. Yeah. Dome. Oh yeah, that that that's a song that will fill you with dread before the monster's even on screen. Uh, that whole thing was pretty. Like the score was pretty. Yeah, uh, like not, I won't say dreaders, but like it it set the theme where uh, it set it set, really set the the tone a very very you know dark and scary tone. Even though like it was still daylight and it was just like it kind of in like a snowy wasteland. It kind of had that. Oh, there's something lurking here somewhere. So we talked about the plot. We talked about characters. We talked about music. We talked about the monster. Uh, do we? Is there any uh, final thoughts, gentlemen, before we go into the score? It's so weird to me in my head that you mean Kurt Russell, Keith David, Wilford Brim, like, like this start all start. I'm like, it's crazy to me that the critics didn't like it that like with everybody because the acting was just. I feel like it was so good for what was too. It's it it, it doesn't click in my mind. Maybe it's just because I'm watching it now. Rather if I watched like five or ten years ago when I was younger or something like that. I um, something that I brought up to the professor when we were watching these films is that there must have been something in the water. Sensibilities were quite different in the '80s, in the late '70s, early '80s, <laughs> because I mean, it's not just this film. But it's the original Halloween, the original Friday the 13th, uh, yeah. the original Evil Dead, uh, including the special uh, scene that you know is, shall not be named. What else? Uh, Alien. And this, it's like there was a lot of creativity and a lot of crazy ideas that were being thrown around in horror. I mean, even to the point that basically now the the horror genre is either just rehashing things that were came out of this generation of horror ideas or basically throw up their hands uh, like a uh, like a uh, rubber i remember the name and just kind of throw up their hands and go well we can't beat that let's get really postmodern that's part of the joke with that movie though is the fact that like halfway through they're just like you know what this is ridiculous let's just stop <laughs> Okay. Yes. Yes. I'm just saying, I'm just, my point, my point is though, is that there was a lot of creativity, a lot of energy in horror at that point. And really, honestly, like mainstream horror hasn't gotten over from this. And that's kind of sad because guys, it's been like almost 40 years. Cause you know why that is? It's cause life is the true horror story, especially in this time. 
Oh, that's, that's, that's deep. Wow. That's deep clockwork. That's that's deep. Wow. I wasn't I was not ready for that. Now, you know, I'm going to derail that little bit of nihilism with a bit of a conspiracy theory. So, you know, you, you guys have probably heard this put forth before, but at the end of the film, you can see McCready's breath. You can't see child's breath. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I did not know that, actually. Just thinking out loud here. Well, we know we know McCready survives because he shows up in the video game. Which is canon, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't think we see Childs, so yeah, you might be onto something. I'd also remember if I don't remember it a hundred percent exactly, but I think it will, in the game, instead of like for their test, I think they had like a blood scanner as well. Like, yeah, they had some kind of scanning device that you'd, you'd stab them. That is, that is, and the funny thing is, is with the uh, the hilarity of the fact that the code in that game is utter spaghetti. You can actually scan your allies, and they will like turn a corner. And so what will happen is, is the game will, well, because it's, uh, this was during the late PS2 era, I believe, seamless loading for levels was a thing. And so it would load in one level and then another, but it, it would uh, then proceed to go, oh, so this guy's not a, a, he's not infected. And then you turn the corner and then you would start vomiting and start to like turn and uh, have tentacles and everything. And you're like, but I just scanned you like 30 feet ago. Why are you and suddenly an alien? And, well, it's like, well, because this is a new level. <laughs> there was some RNG reliance, and it caused a lot of issues. Really unfortunate, because the game is actually a pretty competent squad-based shooter. It's just, once again, kind of like um, Hybrid Heaven from uh, your, your relatively recent uh, N64 review there, mm-hmm. there, Snack. I think their ambition kind of overstepped technology that was available at the time. That's probably a safe assessment. All right, gents, movie... It's time for us to uh, give 1982's The Thing a final score. Ditaku, you picked this one, so... Oh, man, I gotta give this one a 10. This is fan-frickin-tastic. This is, this is my rare 10. This is one where, like, even <laughs> I, as a jaded hipster, I'm like, no, man, this is great. You guys should watch this film if you haven't. It is absolutely fantastic. You know what? I'll, I'll second that. I won't sell you this score because, again, I remember seeing it in middle school, but I think it left more of an impact on me as an adult. I'm just like, I I guess part of it is I've learned more about how movies are made and seeing those practical effects is just, it's too cool. It's never, CG will never compare to what, what these guys can do with a little bit of cornstarch and red food coloring. I'm going to have to third that. Uh, Like I, I think I, I kind of already went through my spiel. Uh, This is one of my all time favorite horror movies. It's, it's, it's wonderful in terms of horror. It's not wonderful, you know, <laughs> it's quite, it's quite, you know, it's a scary movie, but um, yeah, I, I, I will absolutely follow through with a 10 out of 10 on this uh, one. I personally will have to give it the special award of mob scaring me with a milkshake out of 10. Cause, <laughs> <laughs> because as I have, okay. So I tell have the to story tell is that when the dog was transforming in the kennel, because, like I said before, the practical effects and everything and all the puppeteer and everything, it looked so much more real. I was a lot more, like, into it. She puts the, the milkshake on my table, and I, I'm i just like, whoa. It just, I, like, it rips me out, but it, I, it was, like, I, I was legit, like, jumped. It was crazy. <laughs> She's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just watching a scary movie, and thanks for almost giving me a heart attack. Um, no, the... 
the cast of character, everyone did everybody. I think everybody did a solid job in that movie. I didn't see any, like, I don't want to say any bad act, no bad acting or anything or subpar. Everything, everything was great. The score was great. The, the entire, everything was great. It's, it's a 10 out of 10 for me as well. All right. I, uh, we're going to move on to uh, clockworks pick then gentlemen. 1979 Ridley Scott classic alien alien. So the reason I chose this is because this is actually my first real in essence horror movie that I have watched when I was little, uh, <laughs> um, mainly because as my mom put it, it's a really good movie. It's a really good science fiction movie, but it's also got lots of, dabbles in horror for as we'll talk about here in a couple of reasons but in as but like even watching it today and it's everything is crt monitor future <laughs> it, it's i still feel like it still really holds up it holds up in certain ways and it's just a really good movie so uh with this one uh in case anyone has not seen this because this film is hugely parodied hugely homaged um Basically, we have the uh, ore freighter Nostromo who gets a signal, a distress signal. And so they, the crew is awake, um, awakened from their cryo-hibernation. And they are taken to a very obscure, very remote planet. It doesn't even have a name. I believe it's like LV-348 or something like that. Uh, pr- professor, I mean, if you even care to bother you, if you could look that up, that'd be appreciated. Um, and because I'm sure you're already on IMDb. Working but, uh, on it. <laughs> see, I, I knew I could count on you, Professor. You're, you're, that's the reason why you're the professor. Oh, so in case, uh, in case as a inside, just, I call him the professor because he, he's the one with the deepest lore, everyone. I know it's <laughs> like, you know, 12 episodes in and I've been calling him that the entire time, but that's why. So, um, and so, yeah, basically we're given this, uh, situation where they go to check out the distress signal they find the wreckage of a clearly alien spacecraft there's no one there there's a few corpses but they look like they were exploded from the inside out and the only other thing they find are these very strange cocoons whereupon one of their number decides to poke one and it opens up and becomes the stuff of nightmares is that a is that a fair assessment pretty much and just uh, as the kids say, gets wack, yo. And uh, people start disappearing and dying because uh, once he proceeds to get to a coma with this thing wrapped around his neck, because uh, basically a, a larva pops out, burns through his helmet, wraps around his neck and sticks a uh, proboscis down his throat. Uh, and... After he wakes up from this coma that this you know caused him to get into, he has a second larva pop out from his chest and then proceed to disappear. Whereupon they go, oh, well, we'll just find this little thing. It's like, oh, like a foot tall. We'll be able to find it. Oh, my, how wrong they are. <laughs> I have to admit, though, that that scene is still pretty crazy. Cause he's like, oh, oh, I got like a stomach ache, and then now he's just now convulsing on the table, spewing blood out of his chest, and everyone's just trying to like hold him down so he doesn't like spasm himself out. And then and as as 
trademark, I don't want to say trademark, but as portrayed, a chest burster comes out of him. And I was just like, dang, that is that is a scene. <laughs> I, I have I have some thoughts about that later. Not that not to say that it's a bad scene, but Oh, it's one of the classic cinema horror scenes. Yeah, well see the problem is I my my problem is that the film suffers from a lot of from the fact that it is so iconic. Yeah, that is true too. It kind of loses a lot of its bite. So like, for instance, with that chestburster scene, my initial thing went, wasn't, oh God, this guy literally was eaten from the inside out. It was immediately thinking when that same actor, you know, parody that scene in Spaceballs and he goes, not again, and falls yes. over. Yes, not again. <laughs> a lot of it is the fact that if you kind of, if even because of cultural osmosis from the fact that this film is so popular and it has a huge franchise that goes on even to this day. If you are even vaguely aware of the way the xenomorph, the, the monster works, it loses a lot of its unfortunate, uh, it loses a lot of its bite, unfortunately, which is a shame because it is an absolutely fantastic film. The practical effects are great. The acting is great. Once again, like Clockwork was saying, kind of the the retro future of, you know, everything is cathode ray tube TVs. You know, they're using giant 1970s punch card computers and everything. Uh, they're using like Apple II, you know, command prompts in order to communicate with their supposedly hugely intelligent computer mother. And yet it's like, okay, so it becomes, you have the face hugger. It becomes a chest burster, then it becomes a soldier. Now, if the soldier actually starts to eat people, then it becomes a queen. Then once it becomes a queen, then it starts to lay eggs, and then the cycle continues. And basically, if you know that, and you know the fact that it sees an infrared, and it will hide and be very opportunistic, it, it loses a lot of its edge, and that's really unfortunate. And I'm not even going into Prometheus because I've already said my piece on that and I'm done. So I hate to say it. I actually I actually haven't seen Prometheus, so I don't know the context oh. of that. So maybe it made my viewing of this movie better again in this case. You are not missing it. a whole lot. Like I have to I have to ask here, like I'm, do I need to see it for context or do you think it's better if I didn't? <laughs> I mean, you've seen Alien, right? You've basically seen Prometheus because they, they, they almost pull a, a Star Wars Force Awakened where it follows almost beat for beat the same yeah. hits as Alien. The only thing that you really... Okay, I'm going to spoil this for you. The only real thing that you learn in this is that the space jockey, the giant like elephantine monster that actually is mm -hmm. in the alien ship that looks like yeah. it was blown apart isn't actually an elephant. This is not the elephant man. That, that elephant head is actually a helmet. They are actually 10 feet tall albino humanoids. Yeah. Very similar to kind of the Avatar aliens, except they're they're pure white and they have no hair. And the entire thing is that humanity and later the xenomorph are actually biological weapons produced by these space jockeys for some purpose. We don't know why. Prometheus doesn't even go into it. The thing being, though, is because they cut this one scene out of the theatrical release... Huh. It completely ruins the entire thing. And I don't even know if the DVDs even retain the scene because in, the thing is, is that early on they show pr uh, these space jockeys on earth seeding life. Later on, it's shown that they come back to see how their, their experiment went. 
And they show these robed space jockeys interacting with humans, trying to preach, you know, peace and love and acceptance and, you know, humans should not fight against each other. But they take the leader of the space jockeys at that point, they castigate him, they torture him, and they hang, or they execute him by a crucifixion. So when 400 years, you know, into our future, when they actually go to the alien planet and they wake up one of the space jockeys, one of the scientists is this devout Catholic and she has a crucifix. And so they see the space jockey is trying to communicate with us, with the people, but then they see the crucifix around her neck and they just start killing people. Ah. And that's what prompts the, the big climax and that ultimately kills pretty much everyone. But the worst part is it literally is just no, do do do. I'm an alien spaceman. <gasps> crucifix, a popish plot. Dun, dun, dun. And it's, it's like, there's no reason why he decides to just start killing people. It is entirely stupid, but that's the way it's presented. And ultimately it does not, it ultimately does not like add anything to the lore to know. It's like, well, these guys are a biological weapon. It's like, you can kind of see the xenomorph and it's, you know, lethal efficiency at taking people out and go, <laughs> yeah, I don't think nature made these. I, I think someone with a very sick, sadistic sense of humor made these. Yeah, a sick man did design them. His name was H.R. Geiger. Uh, are we Are we going to go into that? Are we going to go into H.R. Geiger? Yeah, not, in, not in particular, but I did want to comment, like, the xenomorph biology, when you first look at it, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I get it. This thing is like Darth Vader armor. It has this huge, freakish, spiderly, like, long arms, long legs, long tail. It, it pretty much is just built for killing everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you certainly get that impression. Oh yeah, this thing could definitely be weaponized. Now, the thing about it is when I see a xenomorph, I'm not afraid of it. I respect it because that thing could kill me easily. But I'm like, it, it's not, it doesn't trigger any of the fear factor that the body horror found in the thing caused me to have. Well, see, here's the thing actually, and this is more in aliens than in this one. And honestly, I'm going to talk about aliens later, but my final thoughts, um, because there's only two alien films. Uh, but here's the thing, though, between that is an interesting distinction. The alien, the xenomorph, is actually intelligent and it will reason through things, even soldiers. The thing by himself is reasonably intelligent as long as it's mimicking something. As soon as something notices it or starts to like notice that it's not actually the person that they're mimicking, they start to make really dumb mistakes. Like, honestly, the entire thing about Among Us with the imposters is very apt because you notice as soon as they're like, wait a second, there's something wrong with you. And he just freaks out and becomes a horrifying tentacle monster. He's like, dude, if you had played it chill for like another second, they would have like turned to somebody else and you could have eaten them. But no, they're like, oh, no. And they freak out and they blow their cover. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean. It's it's that that's the important distinction between the two that I feel is kind of nuanced, but it makes a huge amount of difference. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I also wanted to point out, and it's kind of a a, a kind of a thing I've noticed between because I watched the thing and Alien back to back pretty much while we we're kind of doing this because I wanted to watch them both, and I noticed that they both have super intelligent computer like ai or something of nature in the thing when i think it was uh doc- dr 
Dr. Cooper was like studying the studying the the alien, he was like is like is like scan this. And it like it like reads out like it, it just gives him like the whole backstory of the alien all of a sudden or so like that practically. I'm I'm exaggerating of course, but uh, and it's like so what happens? So like what happens if this ha- if this gets released? Oh, the entire world will be infected and all become monsters if this gets out, which you know put, goes them into the it's a super panic and starts you know destroying communication ta- the, the communications and everything and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the alien, they have, what was it? Mother. Yes. That was the computer who they go into this, like one room built for, I guess one person at a time. Well, not one person at a time, as you see in the, in the part of it, but one person kind of interacts with her and they, they kind of get their information from her. And I thought it was interesting. Cause I'm like, I wonder, are there other movies of this around this time frame that just have like super intelligent AI that kind of tells them what to do to drive the plot forward. <laughs> uh, yes, actually there is a very important film, probably more iconic than alien. It's called 2001, a space odyssey there, my friend. Oh, with Hal. Yes. Yes. Hal 9,000. And the beautiful thing about Hal is that Hal is that not actually mal- uh, malicious. It's just, he was given conflicting orders. Mm-hmm. The conflicting orders of he needs to go to this place and, fu- and fulfill the mission of finding the probe, but he also cannot tell the rest of the crew. So what does he do? He goes, well, the crew is expendable. I'll kill the crew. That way I'll be able to fulfill both orders. Because I can go to the planet. I can scan the probe. I can't tell the crew about this. They're eventually going to find out. So I might as well just kill them. I guess they were around the same time, except 2001 was like a decade earlier. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying about the same time. And, and I mean, and M- Mother has kind of a similar thing, but that's because Waylon Yutani is like Saturday morning cartoon villain. Oh man, evil. they are. And they're like, everything is expendable except the alien. And I'm like, great. Well, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, perfectly honest, Professor, you learn more, much more about that in the second film where you actually kind of see Wayland Yutani's like interactions and how they think about their employees. I mean, now that you put, you know, the whole purpose, like the whole kind of thing with Hal and the mother kind of did the same thing. And it was kind of given more form when uh milk robot or I'm uh, sorry, milk Android all knows Ash. I want to say Bishop, but once again, he's an aliens. So uh, <laughs> uh, Ash, uh, who, who uh, perspirates milk apparently <laughs> um, when he gets nervous, even though he's an Android um, he's uh, when he's going through and he's trying to stop them from turning around or, you know, trying to, I don't want to say like, like, you know, try to kill the, the beat, the, uh, the alien, or I don't know if he tries to stop them in a sense, but either way, it's, you know, it's, it's he's under some like mother's orders to, you know, the crew is expendable. They want to bring the alien out so that way they can, they can study it or whatever. So that's kind of his goal. And then he ends up uh, being defeated by the crew. <laughs> Everybody talks about the chest burster, but that's actually going back and rewatching. That's one of my favorite deaths when he just gets his head whacked off. It just it happens really fast. And the thing that I really like about that is that even though he is a android, he is not shown to be he's not the Terminator. He's not like invincible. He just, yeah, yeah, he just gets his head knocked off because Ripley just beats him to death. He is strong, but he's not, he's not unbearably strong. Yes. They, they later on, once again, when Bishop shows up in the second film, they show that the androids are actually incredibly accurate and incredibly precise, but they're not physically stronger any more so than in a, human of their you know body size you're talking about the scene where they take six knife is going between the dude's fingers right mm-hmm. that's the one <laughs> and i 
and the one thing that it wasn't touched, which is kind of obvious, but the alien is also extremely nimble. It can not like, as you see, I think I can't remember. I think it was Dallas. He's the, the captain. He's kind of crawl. He's kind of like crouch crawling through the, uh, the vents trying to kind of go through to hunt the alien. But that the alien is just like, he's just zooming around. He's, he's able to easily navigate a really tight spaces, even though they're generally, uh, the soldiers generally have a bigger, like, little bit i think they're a bit taller around the same size as a normal like an adult human so like he's like they 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 get around (laughs) well i'll tell you a funny thing actually about that uh they had they hired a uh, exotic dancer in order to uh play the alien because she was the only one makes sense who could kind of do the uh gyrations and a weird like unnatural movement that they wanted makes sense (laughs) that's that's another ditaku movie fact this movie definitely does going back and watching it. It does definitely suffer from just, just how iconic it is. I would totally agree with you because, um, Oh yeah. This movie helped launch Sigourney Weaver. Uh, this was like, because in the, in, at the time she was not a huge star. No one was expecting her to be the final hero in this film. And it, it was like part one of the big like twists in that she was the sole survivor, but I mean, looking back, it's still, it's still just, I mean, it's iconic. It's hard to, to not look at it in, in with a sense of awe. Also, I don't know if it's ever explained, but, uh, I remember the cat getting left behind at one point when the alien was around, but the alien didn't actually eat or take or try to kill the cat. Nope. I was wondering, does that ever explain or is that just kind of a thing? No reason. Well, Okay. Okay. So once again, uh, uh, you know, hypothetically speaking, if we're saying there's more than two alien films, which there aren't, in a third alien film, they actually show uh, what happens if a a face hugger infects a dog. Uh, hypothetically speaking, which it becomes this horrifying brute monster. But I can only assume it's just because at that point they didn't really consider the rules for what a alien would do in that situation. Plus it was only a soldier. It wasn't fertile yet. And not to mention cats have much sharper senses than humans, especially in the dark, which let's be honest, this ship is really dark. So a cat would actually have the edge over a human in the terms of survival here. I was mostly mentioning the one where he, the cat's in the cage, um, going to be transported onto the ship so Sigourney Weaver and, and can get out of there before the alien gets her. Allow me to put on my uh, Groucho Marx glasses and be like, oh, so you're going to look at the cat or the half-naked woman? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's well, a little to, bit after, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they to to be fair, they do explain that um, when they come out of cryosleep and they mention that like half the ship is not working. Which I think is is great in that, you know, this is you look at science fiction up to this point, and you see like, oh, oh, oh space, the final frontier. These are the in- voyages of the intrepid prize and our fancy schmancy shiny spaceship to seek out nude life and nude civilizations. And it's like, and then you see the Destromo. Nude life? Said, is that nude, what you said? Nude? Nude life. Nude life. Civilizations, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and yet he you look exactly at the Destromo and it's He's dirty, <laughs> it's falling apart, half of it doesn't work. It's very clearly. There's a- water leaks all over the place. And I'm like, this place is not airtight. I would not trust my life on this crappy mm-hmm. ship. Yeah, and yet th- that's the thing. It's very clearly supposed to be a working man's vessel. It is not the Enterprise. It is not. You know, um, the Millennium Falcon, 
even though even the Millennium Falcon is like better put together than the Nostromo. And, and yet that's the charm of it. It's it's a working vessel. It's not meant to be like, oh, it's the pinnacle of human achievement. It's like a tugboat. OK, and let me tell you, as a, a man who has many people in who work in Coast Guard, tugboats are not shining pinnacles of human engineering. They are held together by spite and duct tape. <laughs> so, and I mean, the Nostromo is basically the same. I think that's kind of the charm to it, too, though, is that, you know, when you watch like Star Trek, it's a nice, shiny, pristine ship that never gets dirty or anything. And then in this particular fiction, this thing is held together with the, the will of the half slept crew and the and the and the and the overworked engineers who just hate everything and just want mm-hmm. to get paid. <laughs> No, I, I I totally agree with you on that one there, sir. So, gentlemen, any other final thoughts? I, I believe we talked about everything else. This is another one. It's in my top ten favorite uh, horror movies ever. It's just, I love Aliens, uh, especially the sequel. This first one is definitely the the more horror driven one. It's iconic. I, I, a lot of people I know probably even listening to this have already seen Alien. Yeah, these aren't really like hipster choices now i think about it a lot of these <laughs> but this is all pretty mainstream except i um, was the contrarian on this one that's true <laughs> it's it's okay it's okay next next year we'll get alien it. is is absolutely uh it's an icon it does suffer from its own elements of being an icon but again if you're young if you're i, I don't know who exactly all is in our audience if, there, if there's younger views out there and you haven't seen alien yet you should see alien if you're old enough <laughs> and your parents let you <laughs> mm. there you go <laughs> nice cover yes <laughs> <laughs> all right what, so what's your final score cog oh man as much as much as i love alien i think aliens is probably my by the one i enjoy a little bit more so i'm going to give this one like a 9 out of 10 Damn it, Cog, you basically stole my entire final thoughts, but <laughs> fine, all right. Um, all right, how about you, Professor? Yeah, blah, blah. yeah, Professor, what do you think? I really like it. I hadn't I hadn't seen this film since, like, senior year in high school. So going back and revisiting it was a lot of fun. And there were, there were some moments where I was like, oh, wait, isn't this where, you know, Thing happens? But Thing was actually a scene in Aliens. And I'm like, whoops. That that seems to not be a uh, that that's something that you and Clockwork seem to share in common because he once again he was talking to me while he was watching and he's like, wait a second, where's the scene with the power loader? I'm like, that's aliens, Clockwork. <laughs> that's aliens. Yeah, I, I had flashes of that. Um, overall, it's it's really good, and I think it will. I think it earned its place as a sci-fi horror icon. And again, I think some of its biggest weaknesses come from that icon icon status iconography the fact that it is so well known that um but at the same time i've also watched other very iconic movies at very iconic moments and they still have a much more profound impact um i think the movie's a little bit of a slow burn it's really it's really good and they have a few fake outs towards the end that do feel a little bit like padding um, I'm not, I'm not dissing the film. Cause I think Cog put it best. If you haven't seen it, you should, you owe it to yourself and to see what the big deal is. Um, eight out of 10. It's good. It's really good. But the sequel is in every way it's superior. All right. Clockwork. What do you think? So I would love to give this a 10 out of 10 and I can't even though how much I love it. Cause I feel in my 
heart that I mean the characterization of every like everyone feels like a real person working on a as you say a space tugboat pretty much and it really and it it really encompasses everything. I the only reason I would give it if I had to give it a score again like a nine point five just because there are certain things that kind of pull it out like Ash for the character he was him being a milk robot kind of just threw me off. I feel like they maybe could have done something else a little bit with it, but that's my personal opinion. And on the very end where Ripley Lee is on the ship, um, you know, is kind of getting ready for the end scene. Suddenly the alien is trapped in a hole, even uh, off an exploding ship at like on the, uh, on the outs, not on the outside, but, but he's like trapped in the hole. And I'm like, that's very uncharacteristic like of an alien. I understand the ship is exploding, but I mean, for how nimble it was, it didn't make a lot of sense that it got kind of stuck. And the only way reason I got out is when Ripley decided to blow hot steam on it. <laughs> all in all, it's a, I think it's a really good movie. Just a little bit of, you know, not a perfect movie, so I can't give it a 10, but it's a, in my in my heart and soul. It's a 9.5. Fortunately, Cog basically said everything I really want to say. I mean, honestly, uh, kind of to echo earlier sentiments. I, I really think that it's, it is an outstanding film, but it really, honestly, it suffers under the weight of the franchise and the fact that basically much like with star Wars where, you know, Luke, I am your father. It's like everyone knows just through cultural osmosis, kind of the big twists of the film, because it's so well known that it, everyone has, if they haven't at least seen the film, they've seen, kind of the parodies or, you know, homages to it. That being said, Aliens is one of my favorite films of all time. It is like top five, you know, Ditaku's like these films you have to watch before you kick the bucket. And it doesn't really work because that film basically goes, oh, great. You saw the first film. You know how the alien works. All right. Now everybody gets guns. Here you go. And so it doesn't really work without knowing the rules of how the xenomorph operates. Just to put one little thing, there's two things they have in common, which I found really funny when I was watching both the thing and alien back to back. It was the hyper real, the hyper intelligent AI and flamethrowers. <laughs> That's true. That is true. I hadn't considered that, <laughs> which I found really interesting. I was just like, man, the, I, I believe these were made close to each other in a, in a sense, or at least close enough to each other. That I find it really I mean, that has these kind of just these consistencies that are just kind of weird, even though one's in Antarctica and kind of a more modern day and one's in space. <laughs> well, you think about, you think about who is in both of them. It's basically mm -hmm. poor, bedraggled, tired, working class people doing a job. Hmm. And they're not going to have access. I mean, even, even then, I think probably the uh, the crew in the thing probably is better armed because they actually have small arms. I don't think the Nostromo even has small arms. No, I believe the flamethrower was just a product of the engineers being bored, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. So anyways, yeah, honestly, I'm going to have to give it an 8 out of 10. I, I think it's a fantastic film. And the only thing that mars it is the fact that, like, it's – just because of how iconic it is, it suffers and everyone kind of knows it's how spoopy it is. That and the fact that James Cameron, you know, worked his James Cameron magic and the second film is, oh my God, I, I cannot sing the praise of Aliens enough. It is a fantastic film. So, uh, I mean, basically we wouldn't have first person shooters the way we did if it wasn't for Aliens. I mean, to be perfectly honest, because look me in the face. 
I mean, hypothetically speaking, look me in the face and say, oh yeah, Halo would be the way to us without basically cribbing lines straight from the Space Marines. So, <laughs> anyways, that's my thoughts. Now to the final, the strange and the weird. That was good, gentlemen. That was good. Now, now, now comes the uh, the strange, the strange. Yes. So I have <laughs> I have to be perfectly honest. I have to be perfectly honest. This bottle that the snack uh, keeps referring to, I'm trying to figure out because I have some thoughts about this movie. Yes, but I feel like there's a everyone else has a lot more thoughts than I do. All right, are we talking rubber now? We're talking rubber. Yes. I will. I will. I'll take the helm on this one. So this one was my choice. Uh, don't ask me why. I'm pretty sure there was a tall glass of wine involved. In the decision. <laughs> oh, I I thought you were going to go into Billy Joel there for a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I am the contrarian, pretentious hipster on this one. God, yes, you are. <laughs> because. Uh, of all the films that we've we've gone through, this one is most people haven't seen it. It was made for less than a million dollars, and it's French of all things. But uh, it's very strange. I watched this years ago, and for some reason, it popped in my head. And uh, I do not recommend watching this movie without some sort of um, liquid courage or assistance. Um, because it's just strange. It's really strange. Uh, but the more I watch it, the funnier it gets. It's not scary though. That's the thing. It's not. It's not like you need it to be like, oh no, it makes me spook myself. It's like because it's <laughs> no, no, no. not that type of film. Yeah. So it's it's a very weird, bonkers meta film. And yes, there is a tire. It's basically about a tire that comes to life and starts killing people with psychic powers for no reason. They will tell you at the beginning of the film. It is an homage to those weird things that happen in movies just for no reason. And there's actually, the more I watched it, the more it was more interesting, the subplot, because um, you have this police officer that faces faces you down in the beginning. And there's this weird meta element where the characters in the film are talking to representations of the audience. And so what ends up happening is this police officer, Chad, basically talks to the audience directly to you. The first scene is him talking to you in a first person shot. And then it, it goes over and there's your rep, your, your rep for the film is this audience. And the audience begins watching this film from binoculars for no reason. And they find this tire in a junkyard as they're watching. And literally the first line is from the audience is like, Oh, it's already boring. <laughs> and um, the tire comes to life and it, it starts going around or it's like it's it's basically like this stupid animal and it's looking at things like, oh, what's this? Oh, I can smush this. And then it finds this other thing and it's like, oh, I can smush this. And then it finds a rabbit. And it's like, oh, I can blow this up with with powers. Boom. And you're like, oh no, it's got a thirst for blood. But there's this much more interesting, weird subplot where basically halfway through the movie, I guess you could call him the antagonist, but the police officer, Chad, is very aware he is playing out a role in a film. And basically, he gets kind of tired of the movie partway through. And they, him and his partner develop this plan to kill the audience because, you know, if we kill the audience, we don't have to continue on with the movie and we can just all go home. And so the the turkey was a trap. So he he poisons their food and just kills all the audience, except for one grumpy old man who's like, no. I actually kind of like it. 
and I'm going to finish watching it. And they're like, oh, crap. Now we have to finish this stupid movie. <laughs> and um, it it becomes this like ridiculous, like, OK, let's hunt down the tire. And he just gets like exhausted. People are like getting blown up. Their heads are getting blown up like scanner style. And uh, partway through the movie, he just he just gives up. He gets a guy like gets his head blown off in front of him. And he's just pulling his lines out of his pocket. And he's like. Oh, no, it was a tire the whole time. That scene probably is the one that that made us both laugh out loud when we watched it. It's just so ridiculous. And then um, it just gets progressively just more ridiculous because what ends up happening is like the tire falls in love with a woman or gets infatuated with a woman. The audience is sitting back going, oh, man, I can't believe I'm identifying with a tire. All right. And it's just weird. And the one grumpy old man eventually at the end has one of my favorite lines. I don't know why, but this this line just makes me cackle every time I see I hear it. I don't know why, but we get to the end and the police officer is like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of this because the, the old grumpy man confronts him and he's like, you know what? This scene doesn't make sense. This movie doesn't make sense. Like, why are you like, what are you trying to do? It's a tire and you're trying to like lure it out with explode. Like, this doesn't make sense. He's like, well, the police officer ultimately is like, you know what? We, we wouldn't even have to be here if you just eaten the chicken and died and we wouldn't have had to finish the movie. But now we have to finish it. So now it's going to be stupid. <laughs> and, and he just gets fed up at a certain point and just goes in. He's like, you know, what? I'm sick of this. And he goes in with a shotgun and just shoots this tire and comes out. It's like, there, it's done and rolls off. And then one of my favorite scenes, I don't know why, but the ending where the, the guy in the wheelchair that old grumpy guy in the wheelchair is like turns back and he's like, wait, stop. It's not over yet. He's been reincarnated as a tricycle. And then all the tires begin to rise up and head for Hollywood. We're coming for you, Hollywood. And it's, it's, it's weird. It's absolutely weird. I absolutely admit it. It's not a perfect movie. It's incredibly strange. My recommendation is to watching it with a tall glass of wine. I don't, I don't know why, but I, I love that last moment with the tricycle for some odd reason and it just popped in my head and I hadn't watched this movie in a long time and it's one of those weird ones that gets funnier and funnier with subsequent viewings because things sort of pop out in a different way but yes anyway I've said my piece uh man I I kind of have to politely disagree with you on this one about it being funny I mean there were some several chuckle worthy points like um the, the part where they actually have the assistant with the live turkey and he's got the butcher tools. And I look at Snack and Snack looks at me and we're like, you know, you don't think he's actually going to. And then the next scene, he's got this big, you know, roast turkey <laughs> um, or the, or the fact that, you know, they're they have the of course, because it's an indie film, they have, you know, the full frontal nudity shower scene in the audience. They didn't do a few full. It was a back scene of just the her rear end. And then the, the they cuts over to the to the audience. Yeah. And so they start, ta- you know, they start like rating her. Yeah. And, and so. Snick and I were both looking at this and they're like, she, uh, I'm like, Oh my God, really? That's what you think about her. That's weird. I mean, not to say that she isn't a, a very attractive young lady, but they're like, Oh, she doesn't have any, butt." I'm like, are you blind? Did you not just see, she actually has quite a butt. You know, who doesn't have a butt? <laughs> the freaking Sigourney Weaver and aliens doesn't have a butt. <laughs> She's you know walking around without any pants for like a quarter of the film. And yet, you know, there's no ass to be seen, but uh, that's neither here nor there. 
much like uh, Ripley's butt. Hey, no one else was going to give it to you. Like, I can't leave ah, hanging. See, thank you. Thank you, Professor. I'm sorry. It's just this film is very postmodern, and it's I just kind of rolled my eyes a lot at it. I, I did enjoy, though, the, the B scene, especially with the sheriff, uh, especially that one scene that you mentioned where he pulls out the script from his, his pocket. He's like, oh, God, <laughs> the killer was a tire. And it's just how deadpan and, you know, not caring it was. But just the entire thing where, like, he has the soliloquy at the, at the beginning where it's like, why don't characters in movies go to the bathroom? I'm like, because it's not German scat porn. <laughs> Because it's not relevant to the plot. Why can't we see the air all around us? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought it was funny. I, 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 no, I mean, it's it was definitely it was definitely very interesting. But, I mean, it's very postmodern. And in a certain level, it kind of starts sniffing its own farts. It does. It absolutely does. Uh, it was definitely an experience. But, uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't see myself ever watching this film ever again. Um, I mean, I, I'll say this, though. I'll say this, though. The gore effects and the fact that, once again, the fact that they're killing people via scanners, a head explosion, is interesting. There's a lot of creativity there. But the, in order to get to that point, there's a lot of like, well, I I studied cinematography. So, uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you, audience. Stupid, stupid dumbheads. Sorry, Professor. Go, go ahead. Uh, the, the thing that I think was the most interesting is uh cog i don't know if you've ever seen or played it this reminded me a bit of the video game called the stanley parable i've heard of it i think you've told me about it the the thing is the the thing is i think this film actually would have worked better as a game you have the surrogate audience but why not have the audience be both the, the like the cameraman and the audience all in one and then you could have that interactive cinematic experience to actually question the role between audience and like, film, which is what they were shooting for. You know, there's another another uh, video game visionary who does that a lot. Actually, I can think of two, but one that's infamous for this. Uh, Hideo Kojima? <laughs> well, that was one of them. I But there's another person, um, press X to David. <laughs> yeah, basically what you're describing is a David Cage video game, dude. Uh, sort of, um, though with a more... Black comedy relating to tires with psychokinetic powers. <laughs> just the concept of it being a tire with psychic powers is just ridiculous. Yeah, no, there, there, was, there was a lot of thought put into it. And, and there was obviously things like it can't, the tire does not have the physical capacity to destroy the glass bottle using like yeah, running it yeah. over like it does with the scorpion. <laughs> so it, it, they have to like finagle. Oh, well it has psychic powers. So it just like blows the glass up. I'm like, okay, they, they clearly like thought through like how goofy this scenario actually is when they see it in motion. I was just going to say, yeah, it, it's very clear from the outset. This is not a like invincible creature. The fact that he gets stuck in the pool. kind of <laughs> <that>. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and th- there are there are moments that that are genuinely funny, um, and like even the intro sequence before he starts like doing the, the diatribe, like the car is driving down the road and just like deliberately yes. swerving to hit these wooden chairs, <laughs> and then like he climbs out of the trunk, yeah, rather than getting out of the car. It's like that's actually funny just because of how non sequitur. And then is. you have the audience being like, "Oh man, why did they break all those chairs? We we, we could have sat on those." <laughs> And then, like, um, again, when, when he starts, like, 
the movie's over. Go home. <laughs> and he tells him, like, oh, shoot me. He's like, are, are you joking right now? It's like, no, go ahead and shoot me. It's <laughs> yeah. not going to do anything. That bit was actually really funny. Um, you could easily, however, have condensed this movie into about a 30-minute short. Yeah, you could and have. I think you actually would have like increased the overall quality. I think it was actually based on a short that they made, and then they he was able to kind of build the budget into like I think it was one of those early director films where he was trying to like you know get his career going sort of thing. No, that would make sense. Oh, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like I said, you probably could have made this. I will tell you, if you turn this into like a 20, 30 minute video game experiment where maybe you're actually like playing the tire. That would be wild. I'm sorry. That would be wild. That should be a video game. Yeah. Like play as the tire, do all this weird, crazy goat simulator stuff, and then just have like this really deadpan narrator, like make fun of you the entire time. You'd have a much more engaging experience. (laughs) What about you there, Clockwork? You've been kind of quiet. So. I know. I would give everyone kind of their turn because I feel like mine might be a little bit long, too. So the the, the main thing I want to take out of this is that in my head, as, as in the beginning when the tire – like, I've kind of felt like in this weird kind of – because I had to say I, I, w- I watched this completely sober. I didn't drink anything. I have I didn't do anything. I just kind of watched – and I feel – as as Cog said, I feel like I was sound like, man, I, I, I feel like if I, I needed to, to like take or drink something or take something to, to enjoy this more because for some reason some of this is kind of going over my head. I did kind of like the fact, though, that the tire – didn't know like it wasn't just a evil monster right off the bat it kind of had to learn that it was a or not evil monster but it was a thing like it got up it rolled it fell down it got up it rolled it, like it kind of you know it, 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 it kind of started kind of sorry, growing talking about in front it of your it eyes. got up and it rolled and it fell down i mean that I'm that sorry. is what this happened is that is an accurate assessment of the events of the film <laughs> it exactly is what happened <laughs> it, it, it kind of grows in front of your eyes you're like oh cool and then it learns it has powers and the biggest thing in my head was as it was using its psychic powers it starts kind of shaking and squeaking and, and the only thing in my head is like i need to learn how to use photoshop and make a gif that literally just says rubber squeaking intensifies because that's all that really <laughs> happens before something actually happens it's, it's all my head's like, oh rubber squeaking intensifies something's gonna happen oh my gosh you know you get these weird moments where it's like oh no it's got a thirst for blood it killed yeah, a buddy it, it- it kind of does. And the be- the very beginning when he's going, when like it's, you're kind of on that street and you see all the chairs in the, on the road and he's hitting them all as he goes through and he comes up out of the trunk. I'm just like, this is going to be interesting. I could feel it. And he said, this is a movie about, I, I don't remember exactly. He said, it's something correct. This is a movie about just, you know, we're not going to explain anything. <laughs> and I was just like, that makes for some reason everything that has happened to have a lot more sense than it should. <laughs> like that literal explanation, just literally like everything. You're like, what is going on? What am I watching? No reason. He says that line and goes, everything just <laughs> straightens out <laughs> all of a sudden. Clockwork uh, messaged me after it. And he's like, what did I even watch? And so I, I had just, I, I had just seen it and I'm like, I actually had to explain postmodernism to him because the film is extremely, I know it's, it's such so a like, weird experience. It, it, it's, it's going to be weird. Okay. It's, it's kind of up its own butt. So the, the main thing, and I feel the, the, I don't want to say it, it was a detriment, but this is where I personally started falling off is when 
is like the crowd, like the, the, the crowd eats the poison chicken or turkey, sorry, or whatever it was. Um, they all, except for the old man dies and they're, you know, going through a thing where we don't have to do the movie anymore or, and then everyone's kind of like the whole point where the old man is still there and he's still the crowd. And then it became so meta and it became so meta and you know that everybody knows now that the joke kind of just falls flat and it wants to kind of keep going but it can't anymore because it it, you it's like it's like you see the 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 movie monster and it's just this like dude in like a really bad costume and like everything else was really good because you never saw it until then you're just like oh that's it that's it that's what's happening (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Um, it's it once that happened, I j- I really just kind of fell off, and I I kind of and there were and I did find the uh, the whole crowd scene pretty funny. Um, they're all kind of sitting there like watching some kind of like movie play out in front of them, in a sense. Um, yeah, as um, and the ending was kind of silly, where the reincarnated as a tricycle. It, it had a lot of good chuckles out of me. And like when the dude is apologizing to everybody, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I guess we still have, I guess there's one person who's still alive. Apparently we need to stop, keep going with this. So let's just keep going with this. And everyone's kind of like, what is he talking about? Uh, and I, <laughs> and he apologizes to the, 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 the brother, the dad, who's being just a big, uh, to the, the kid or whatever. Um, and I was just, it is, but again, after that point where it wants to keep going, it just kind of, you know, as I, as it was said already, I felt like if they shortened this a bit, it would have been better in a sense. You want to say something, Snick? For those of you who haven't watched this, just play Metal Gear Solid 2 and only play through the part where Raiden's running around naked. And that's pretty <laughs> much this this film. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean the bit where Arsenal, they have the weird Arsenal's guts playing and it's... La, le, lu, le, lu. And everyone's going crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much, that, that's kind of a, a comparable experience. Oh, I was going to say it. It see the the thing is, is that it plays around a lot with the expectations for what the audience is. It plays around a lot with what you know the interactions between you know the audience and the actual audience, because there's a vicarious audience who are actual actors and characters in this story, and then there's also you, the viewer, who's watching it, and they they break. There's not even a fourth wall. It's like there's a fourth wall, and then there's a fifth wall. Because they actually yeah, because there's literally the old guy at the end is like, oh, I'm I'm not involved in the movie, I'm not, a and character. yet then they kill him, yes. Um, so I mean, they they break the fourth wall, they break the illusion of you know, oh, well, this is a created universe, and you have to act the way that the characters would act in the universe, and so then they even and but on top of that, they also you know interact with the viewer because they're addressing you who's watching it. It's. Once again, I hate to say it, it's all very postmodern and it just, I, I kind of think that you are onto something, Cog, when you're talking about how this is a, uh, a you know, a, a up and coming director vehicle, because it strikes me as someone who's just straight out of film school, who wants to flex their muscles and has a lot of, a lot of big, big ideas, but a lot of, well, a lot of postmodernism in their heads too. And I mean... I, I really don't like postmodernism. It's like it's like wasabi. A little bit is good, just a little little bit. <laughs> you don't like what are you talking about? You don't like having your nostrils completely on fire? 
oh, I love my sinuses <laughs> cleared out. Just here's the problem, though. I have really, really, really big sinuses. So when they get cleared out, I then have just a mess all down my face. Okay. And yes, also, you know, my entire head is just going. That that metaphor is the exact feeling I got when they did the mannequin explosive scene where the ro- the, the robot, the, the tire is in the uh is in the uh the room watching nascar or whatever and like they're kind of like trying to like talk to it and like i'm just like i was like this is too much like this bit has gone on like ridiculously long um there is no there is no gas to this anymore (laughs) yeah I'd kind of have to agree with you on this one. Although it did ca- it did catch me off guard. I did chuckle when the dude came out with the shotgun and just blew the tire away. It's like, now the movie's done. And I was just kind of like, oh, that was abrupt and actually kind of interesting. <laughs> Any other thoughts before we move on to final scores? I've pretty much gotten my... I, I, oh, also the reincarnation bit where he's like, you reincarnated as a tricycle. I was like... That's, I don't know why, but that makes me laugh like- off every time I hear it. That that was probably the funniest moment in the film, if you ask me. Yeah, right before right before he gets finally killed. Yeah, I will I will have to agree that one and the oh no the killer, killer is a tire. <laughs> yeah, and it's just he's reading it off of his script. I I think those are probably the two funniest jokes in the film. I, I don't want to say damn it, Cog. You know you, you screwed us up again, but I don't care. <laughs> I really don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say he. I wouldn't uh, say he screwed up or anything. I say like if if this. I was gonna say like if uh, to go on to score. Uh, we're going on the scores. I'm assuming now. Um, I would probably give this like a. I'd hate uh, say like a probably like a six out of ten. It it had its moments. The problem is, is that first I I feel like either the direct whoever the director or someone like had an idea like in the mid to end part that just it fell completely flat because he gave he gave the bit away um and tried to and he gave the bit away on purpose and felt like he could he could recover it he he could recover it with something else but it it didn't work out at all I will say six out of ten is absolutely fair when I that's pretty much the i would actually have gotten it given it a lower score the first time i watched it because the first time i watched it i was like what the hell is this and what did i just watch it was literally that experience of what in the world did i just watch and it was just kind of out of morbid curiosity that i watched it a few more times and it seemed i i i'm sure there was like i said it's best to watch with a tall glass of wine and uh, it just kind of got funnier and funnier the more I watched it, laughing at this very bizarre movie. And uh, I would say, yeah, I'd say I'd say it's about a six out of ten if you're if you're just starting watching it and completely sober. I'm not going to uh, advocate for alcoholism or anything of the sort. If you, <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, nice, nice glass, couple glasses of wine. Uh, it becomes probably closer to like a seven point five, maybe somewhere around there. It it has its entertaining moments. It's not perfect, but for some reason this time around, I I laughed myself silly just for how absolutely bonkers and bizarre it is. So what I want to re- just one thing: the reason I gave it the six out of ten on the first watch is mainly because again that first like the first scene is actually i in my opinion is the most important scene 
because they, you know, it's the it's the biggest WTF is going on. He's knocking over the chairs. He gets out of the trunk and everything. But when he looks at the screen and says, "This is a movie that we're not that things are going to happen for no reason, and we're not going to explain anything." And then you realize, and either it's going to click or it's not going to click. The thing is, it, it did click for me, and that's why I understood it to a point. Again, I don't, I haven't watched a lot of, or a lot of postmodern movies, so it kind of, you know, sputtered out more. But if that doesn't click, it's like a, like a four, like a three out of 10, cause you ain't gonna get it. But if it clicks, you get it. It's better, but not by that much more. Honestly, you'd, you'd have to look for them. There are a lot of art house stuff in that sort of thing. It's just, um, I, I've been in literature studies. I've been in philosophy. I, that, that's, you know, I also read a lot. So that's where I encounter these things. Also, it pisses me off. And as the professor can attest, I hunt down things that piss me off. So, I mean, if you're, if you're interested in that sort of thing, look up art house films. A lot of them are going to be like that. What about you, professor? As I said, the movie had good moments and it had a lot of good ideas and there was a lot of love put into it. You can tell. But at the same time, that doesn't excuse the fact that the movie was entirely too long, entirely too dragged out, and really high on its own basic premise. I think a six out of ten is perfectly fair. Yeah, I, I kind of, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you. Like like you said before, I feel like once again there is the skeleton of a very competent, very tight kind of you know once again very meta textual story in there where you can not only have your cake and eat it in terms of, you know, you have your nonsensical horror story about a tire killing people. And at the same time, the director gets to waggle his groucho marks, you know, eyebrows go, eh, 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 don't you get it, viewer? Eh? <laughs> I, I don't know why, but for some reason, the fact that I could see the director kind of doing that makes it that much funnier. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but- it's like, there, there's a lot of dead air. I'm, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you, Cog. It, it's all in the weird little elements, like the moments that I thought were so boring the first time I watched it suddenly became like much funnier, like on subsequent viewings, like the just weird scenes of the tire rolling through the through the countryside with just like happy music playing. And you're like, oh, it's happy. <laughs> well, I mean, it there's there's a certain like, for instance, in the very beginning, you know, the, the, he's a roll, he gets up, he rolls, he falls over. He gets up, he rolls, he falls <laughs> over. Yes. That's important because, you know, we determine his capabilities. And so, you know, when we actually see him interacting with other characters, we can go, okay, this is what he's capable of doing. But did we really need him to like just ogle? girls who are swimming in a swimming pool. Do we really need to have him just like, once well, again, I think part of that was NASCAR. just the scenes. Like you always have to have like a shower scene and like most of the horror movies. So we have to show the girl in the shower. It's not even that one, dude. It's, it's uh there's one like I, right before he gets stuck in the swimming pool, there are a couple of girls in swimsuits and he's just kind of like, you see him, he's rolling by, he stops, he turns and he's kind of just checking them out. And oh, that's when he's right. That's yeah. Right. And I'm like, did, did we really need to have this? <laughs> Probably so, not. I mean, I mean, far be it for me to say, you know, Hey, how, how dare we not have, you know, attractive girls <laughs> in swimsuits. But it's like, once again, there's a very, there's a reason why in most stories you don't have like, hold on guys. I haven't gone to the bathroom in like two days. I really got to pee. You know, you don't have Ripley like having to go to the head 
so that she can take a wicked dump. <laughs> hold on, hold on, alien. I have to yeah, go to the bathroom. You don't have Ripley taking a wicked dump because she hasn't, you know, gone to the bathroom in three days. Because, well, first off, that's not, it's not that type of story, and secondly, it's not it's not interesting. It's not pertinent to the thrust of the narrative. I think that's part of also why I like it because it kind of pokes at at little writer people and being like, hey, nobody cares. <laughs> uh, I feel personally attacked right now. I'm sorry, but nobody cares. <laughs> oh, that that cuts that cuts deep, man. Good night, everybody. I just want you to know. Good I just night, want everybody. You, I just want you to know, everyone, audience, people, that this man, this this cog man here, is is my editor. So that that cuts double deep. That's two times damage right now. Ooh. Anyways. I, I apologize. Getting back on track, I'd have to say about five, five point five. I think that's fair. So, I mean, I, I can understand that, you know, it's your thing. You know, there's no accounting for taste. And I mean, I, I, one of my favorite fighting mangas of all time is Madaka Box. And it is, that is postmodern as hell. I mean, the fact that the, the main villain actually turns to the audience at several, the actual reader, and is like, do you get a, do you get a load of this guy? Do you see what he's doing? Do you think he's really going to work? That didn't work against Son Goku. Why do you think it's going to work against me? And, I mean, that sort of thing. And so I, I can understand it, but, you know, once again, that didn't really do it for me. So, yeah. But it, So 5.5. All right. Now, I, I have to say, overall, this was really fun. This was really fun, yeah. Absolutely. The, the movie block was was not only a kind of a trip down memory lane, it was also something new all at once. Yes, I'm glad you guys had me on here to discuss it, even though I didn't really have much to say about Gremlins. I did have a lot of talk about everything else because <laughs> everything else is something that, I, well, except for rubber. Rubber was a little rubber piques my interest enough that I I had to I had to know what was going on. <laughs> it, it's one of those weird movies where you're just like, what in the hell, like. Yeah, it, it has that weird effect. Yeah, no, I had a, I had a great time. Uh, we're going to be doing some more movies, I think, as we go along. Uh, we hope you enjoy this special Halloween episode of the Tomodachi Brothers. And thank you very much, Mr. Clockwork, for, for appearing with us. Yes, and if you didn't, if you, if you still don't mind listening to me or my non-views on the Gremlins, uh, you can catch me at twitch.tv slash clockworkfiction. Uh, I am still working out some stuff with the internet and unfortunately the whole Twitch DMCA thing has got me a little rallied. So maybe some more notes on my Twitter on that one later on, but we will try to get back into that as soon as possible. Cause there's a lot of new stuff in final fantasy and a lot of, a lot of games I would like to share with the people. Yeah. He is still playing final fantasy 14. Look him up. You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> No, I'm just saying. I'm just saying he's still out there. I'm just saying he's on Marlboro, guys. You can you can stalk him. You can you can say, hey, it's clockwork. Yeah, stalk me so you can group up with me so I can do Castro more. <laughs> <laughs> I need them tokens so I get my resistance weapon upgrades. <laughs> All right, gents. Uh, final thoughts. I give it two. I give it two ghosts uh, singing with one skeleton using his using his ribs as a uh, xylophone. <laughs> I would give our Tomo uh, film uh, episode a happy Halloween out of happy Halloween. I like that. I'll second that. I, I like that too. <laughs> and remember, ladies and gents, in the spirit of Wilford Brimley and the thing, don't get diabetes. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween, everybody.
you for listening to the Tomodachi Brothers Review Podcast. Produced and recorded by The Hipster Snack, Ditaku, and Cog. Sound design and editing by executive producer Sean Taylor Brown with Cog Sound Engineering. Music written and performed by Sean Taylor Brown with Costas Voss of Core Inside Studio on the drums. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tomodochi Bros Anime Podcast. I'm one of the co-founders and co-hosts of the podcast, The Hipster Snack. If you want more content from me, I have my own YouTube channel, The Hipster Snack. Links will be available everywhere I can spam it up until I get a custom one, but all in due time. I do weekly game reviews and in the future, probably more than that. Look forward to it and I'll see you there and on Twitter at Hipster Snack. See ya!